Following a string of seasoned movie makers such as Luke Besson, Doug Lyman and Steven Soderbergh, we bring you a relative novice this week in the shape of Benedict Andrews, at least a novice in cinematic terms. For Benedict is one of the world's foremost theatre and opera directors who makes the transition to the screen with psychological thriller Una. I'm Edith Bowman and you're listening to Soundtracking, the podcast in which we delve into the world of film music. Given this is Benedict's first film, much of our conversation focuses on the differences between the mediums in which he's worked. It also gives us an opportunity to play you examples of music from his stage productions, including extracts from Alex Barnowski's smoky cinematic score for Streetcar Named Desire, which starred Gillian Anderson. Indeed, the cue you can hear now is Alexei's quirky interpretation of the Varsuviana polka, which Tennessee Williams specifically wrote into the directions of the play. But there's plenty to discuss when it comes to Una 2. Starring the ever-excellent Rooney Mara and Ben Mendelsohn, the narrative centres on a woman confronting an older man about an illicit sexual relationship which took place in their past. The film is scored by Benedict's friend, Jed Curzo, whose work we discussed at length during a previous show with Jed's brother, Justin. Jed has developed a reputation as a composer of serious weight, as evidenced by the fact he and the London Contemporary Orchestra recently provided the music for Ridley Scott's Alien Covenant. Hardly surprising then that Benedict turned to his old mate on taking the plunge from stage to screen. Benedict, thank you so much for your time. Um, you have this wonderful world of creativity that I want to dive into and talk about how music relates to it, mm-hmm. if you wouldn't mind. For sure, I love and, and we'll start with Una, which is this... I kind of don't want to say too much about the storyline of it because there's so many wonderful moments of unfoldingness with the characters and interweaving of the relationships and stuff. But I was really interested to see that you'd work with Jed Carzo on the soundtrack for this as well, who I've talked about a number of times with other directors, be it John McLean or his brother. Why was he the man that you wanted to okay. bring in on, on Una? So Jed and I went to drama school together. Whoa! When Jed, when okay. Jed, when Jed was an actor, <laughs> we went to Flinders. In his previous life. Yeah, we went to Flinders <laughs> University and we were good mates at uni yeah. together. And, and then he was in some of the first shows that I directed outside of university. He played Mephisto in a production of Urfaust, of Goethe's Urfaust. Mephisto with an electric guitar bass. Sound. But yeah, it was like one of the first productions outside of university. But he was in that and we premiered it in Weimar in Germany this is all Jed's secret past this is but, great we can but, use this with him when yeah, we, yeah. When we so he was in a few shows with me he did a, another beautiful play in Adelaide we're both from Adelaide and so Justin his brother Justin was Australia's greatest young set designer before he became a filmmaker yeah. and he and I worked together as a set designer director team from yeah. 1996 to 2003 when he stopped set designing yeah Jed and I were the best men at Justin's wedding, so... <laughs> this is proper, this is family, this, is this isn't like it? This is Adelaide, yet? you know, <laughs> yeah. like... So, Adelaide but, Mafia. But, you know, when it came to this movie, I've adored watching Jed, you know, shift, like with Justin. Justin's one of my best mates and a beautiful set designer, and it's given me such great... I didn't want him to stop being a set designer, because he's my <laughs> set designer, we had a good relationship. I was like, OK, you want to go learn to make movies? OK, you know, oh well... <laughs> You'll come back. <laughs> but, but, but 
I love that he didn't come back and he's gone on to become an extraordinarily yeah. singular filmmaker. And as uh, you know, the two of them as brothers, the language that they're opening up, um, but also watching Jed start to really flex his muscles with this relationship with the LCO and all sorts of things like that. He just did the Alien Covenant score with them for Ridley Scott, didn't he? Which is pretty impressive. Yeah. some other you know really cool people for the soundtrack and mm -hmm. a, you know youngish but let's say this kind of next generation of soundtrack makers who are around soundtrack composers yeah. who are really interesting and I really admire Jed and I that history was really meaningful to me yeah especially with being my first film but just having that was my hunch was it would be very meaningful and it was to have that shared history and have that language to just know each other already but it's also, we had a fucking great conversation together. I think he was the only per we had lots of good conversations, but he was the only one who said, it has to be beautiful and it yeah. has to shimmer. And kind of from that point, friendship aside, I thought he's, he's the person to do this. subtle the score to Una, incredibly yeah. subtle because he knew that any sort of conventional score or any emotional mani manipulation would be against the task of the film which was to keep the audience in a space of emotional ambivalence, no, a space of kind of moral ambivalence and emotional ambivalence on a kind of knife edge yeah. and if you said it's okay or you should feel this now I'm all for that in certain contexts and God knows this is not pre-director you probably should be but you know I'm all for that in filmmaking as well there are certain times you need the music to say cry <laughs> or get scared yeah. you know but we needed this to be very 
hard to grasp, shifting, subtle, free-floating, as he said, shimmering as well. Mm. But we searched a lot for it. We initially thought there would be a lot more stuff with strings, maybe the LCO, all of that. Till halfway through, I said, man, have you ever done an actual, like, just guitar soundtrack? Because I know he's a great guitarist. I've heard him do that. And we talked about, I don't know, Paris, Texas score or various kind of guitar-driven things. in the end he put it through so many other processes but I was quite interested as we were searching for it as the film was revealing itself to be exceedingly intimate and raw nerved that tactile thing and that loneliness in a way of what it would mean for him to have to find the score through his fingers on the guitar and and all of that and that sort of tactile sensual intimacy of that with a film that is also in the end about people being too uncomfortably close something you said there is that you know there are sometimes where there are films where you're left with unanswered questions and even the end credit music will answer those questions for you what I love about Una is that I came out with so many questions about the characters that I didn't want to know the definitive answers to I kind of wanted them to go over my head Mm -hmm. and the music didn't do that for me which was exactly what I wanted and that's kind of was the goal of the filmmaking is that this relationship 
this bond between these two people that comes from this nihilistic, criminal, illegal relationship and this very damaging relationship nonetheless formed a bond between two people that they, they can't shake and that she certainly can't shake and that she, she needs to confront. If her questions were answered easily, they would be meaningless and they have altered the course of her life and the scar tissue over 15 years is profound. So we would be selling her out as a character um, and her their experience together out and the kind of existential question of how our decision in life and how the past can influence the present, we'd be selling that out if we offered e easy answers. So that was very important in every aspect of the filmmaking. There were other endings. We experimented with other songs there. I think there was one where we watched some cuts with Wild as the Wind, not sung by Nina Simone. Oh, wow. <laughs> it would have been a very different film and not the right ending. It wouldn't have done that. Love me, love me, love me, say you do. Let me fly You were asking me how, how we... That was fascinating. That was so <laughs> but, it's, but, but that's what I wanted to find out from you because it's very rare that I get the chance to speak to directors about crossing different mediums of traditional theatre but then also into opera as well and your work within that world and music streams through them all. And when you're approaching your first feature film, if you approach the music similarly to how you would with a theatrical production or is it completely different? I think I approach all of them instinctively mm. and through approaching them instinctively it means not being able to force anything or guess anything beforehand but one thing sorry to curve back that jed really taught me was you have to let the film tell you what it wants to be you can't force something on it it's a dialogue from it and so he, he might have talked to you about when they were doing macbeth kind of throwing out an electronic score and reworking another one yeah we did speak to justin about changing the score of macbeth and i love the way that it turned out yeah and the fact that he understands that and that you're not sort of cutting the hand to fit the glove but you've got to feel your way through it that sort of sense of deep instinct and that conversation with the thing as it's coming into the world mm. is so crucial. Mm. 
this is something that Jed really gets from his work with Justin and mm. something that I realize I do in the theater. I do it by playing around in the rehearsal room. Particularly if I'm using extant music in the rehearsal room, like some shows, like I don't know if you saw The Streetcar Named Desire, that has a very heavy soundtrack of extant music. I've listened to Alex Barnowski's score to Streetcar and it's like something from a film noir. It's brilliant. Yeah, that just comes from messing around in the rehearsal room and seeing if stuff sticks and all of that. And I love music very deeply. I also have a, I'm a big collector of vinyl. I DJ a little bit. Nice. In a bar in Reykjavik occasionally. But, you know, I, I, lo- I really love and live for music. I have good instincts for it and have a kind of banks of especially contemporary music that I can draw on in a rehearsal room. in love with opera as well because uh, it's been such a big part of your career. As a theatre director, but only recently really. The first opera I directed, I don't know if it's 2008 or nine, so it's relatively recent. A lot of older, not older, theatre directors generation-ish above me, like Jim Sharman who directed the Rocky Horror Picture Show and has been an opera director himself. Like I assisted him when I was very young and he's, over the years, he would always say, when are you going to start doing opera? And I think he was responding to something essentially musical um, and rhythmic in my theatre making. But it kind of took a long time to come, and I maybe I resisted it for for some time. Even it wasn't me. I didn't grow up loving opera. If I went to see opera, if I connected with it, it was because a theatre director I loved was doing it. Peter yeah. Sellers was doing it, or if Christoph Martala was doing it, or Pina Bausch was doing Gluck. Or you know, then I would go see that or hunt that down because I was obsessed with these visionary theatre makers. And in that, I started to understand a deep space of myth. Oh, Barry Kosky is another great example. I don't know if you know Barry. No, I don't. So he's the to me, the foremost contemporary opera director in the world and one of the most experimental, but he runs the Commercial Opera in Berlin, where I work quite a lot. He's Australian. He's worked here quite a bit at the ENO and the, the, at Covent Garden. He did the Shostakovich, the nose that was there. You know, he's an opera animal. He's, he's born to, he's a good theatre director, too, but he's an opera animal. He's born to be an opera impresario. I don't feel I am. Mm. When I go in there, I feel like I'm, in a way, parachuting in as a, as a theatre director. And wo- I know how to work with music, and I've learnt more and more over the years in working with it to, to sort of unpack a score. But I don't read music. I make weird little squiggles. I first learnt what a fermata was and how useful that was as a director, that when a silence comes, you've really got to do something in that. But, but I sort of learnt through having to struggle with it as well. But I began with Monteverdi, which I think was quite useful in the production of The Young Vic, and increasingly doing quite a lot of more extreme contemporary music, like the Detlef Glanat Medea that I just did in Berlin. question I, I come into it as a theatre director and my initial thing in there was a the attraction to the way that the kind of rocket <laughs> into the stratosphere that the music gives you that you can access myth 
and the mythic level quite fast and also to pursue a kind of veracity in the performances and a visceral veracity in the performance which is you know you don't always see in opera i think it's really refreshing and for me you know i i love learning about things so i love learning about soundtracks and composers and that want to feed the brain and i think that when you have such a positive outlook on an approach to things where you know you say you didn't live and breathe opera as a child it wasn't something that's really appealing for people to then try it mm -hmm. and to experience it maybe for the first time as well yeah. that someone like yourself who comes to a theater background is getting in there yeah. and doing it it's so appealing no, isn't and it? I, I think i lived and breathed theater and actually i realized there is a logical connection at first i felt a little bit like an alien or i felt like i was swimming with the goggle on swimming down looking at the weird creatures down there <laughs> <laughs> but over time you know i also realized it's it's high octane theater directing you mm -hmm. there's such pressure on you to meet this score or to choose not to meet it or whatever but to respond to this event these extraordinary events in time so there'll be a musical event and you have to say what is that how am i going to interpret it how do i translate that and i think that's also quite interesting if you say in theater there's always the act of translation how are you going to translate tennessee williams and actually we tend to think that the at least in the anglo-saxon theater they do anyway that the translation will stick quite quite closely to the original or it's unacceptable opera has actually more allowance for translation yeah. go, okay now this is a new figaro how will they interpret that and i think that's also part of this um turbocharged <laughs> directing what i love is the fact that you have all these things that you take on be it theater or opera so it be the the music of the opera that kind of i guess sort of forms the framework and then you build the color and the the real life around it and with something like you know whether it's shakespeare or tennessee williams or Chekhov, where you then have you have the words but then you create the world around <laughs> that as well it's <laughs> wonderful to have the i don't know these frameworks to then create this yeah world building too world, yeah yeah, yeah. Often today I've been talking to people purely about the film and they ask a lot of questions about which do you like best, what is the difference between film and theatre, kind of without being churlish, say, I don't like one more or the other. They're different ways of approaching the same questions and mm -hmm. the same... I think I realised most profoundly through making the film that, yes, I had to learn the apparatus, that was all very new and like a baptism by fire through learning that, but it was very um, gratifying to realise that I was going into the same well mm -hmm. of experience in theatre making and inquiry into human behaviour and, and poetry and emotions that I was drawing on the same inquiry. And then that means that, yeah, they're not the same, they all demand different things, but they're kind of, they're swirling around the same space. Yeah. With Una, did you rehearse similarly as you would with a theatre production with the actors? No, not at all. Because the film's about two people who see each other again for the first time after 15 years. And the first word of the play, not here, but the first word of the play is a shock. <laughs> or shock. And we needed to preserve that. That was like the raw material of the film was going to be that encounter between these two again. So if we'd kind of rehearsed it away from the cameras, I think we would have been taking away from that energy. It's a question of form as well, that in, in the theatre rehearsal room, rehearse things over and over, you get lost, you get tangled, you've, you suddenly discover something, you want to tear your hair out at another moment, you try things from many different ways, so that you're building up the muscles and the substance to go out in front of an audience full of people and put yourself on the line night after night. So you have to build that up to then be raw, raw and do it as if for the first time again and again. <laughs> but in the film, it really only has to happen once in front of 
the camera so it was more than like taking those things that might happen over weeks and weeks in, in a rehearsal room and trying them in the moment in front of the camera and also these two they're really Ben Mendelssohn and Rooney Mara who is Ray and Una meeting again for the first time in the movie they're very very instinctual truthful film actors and you just don't want to see anything yeah. in front of that She's amazing. I could watch yeah. Ben Mendelsohn read a newspaper yeah. for hours. He's just amazing. Yeah, he's incredible. Massive, massive fan yeah. of him. Do you have music around you when you're writing? Play Not consciously. Maybe just at home or yeah. yeah. My records are there, so I'm They're playing like, them more. Like friends and companions, aren't they? Yeah, and I'm a crazy obsessive with them. So every time I go to a city, I'm either going finding out where secondhand stores are and digging in them, but or here I have the root of Sounds of the Universe phonica. And yeah. now that I'm in Iceland, too, a very dangerous like. Well, there's something else. A square arrived in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. There's so much great music comes out of Iceland. Yeah. There's a guy called, uh, apologies if I get his name wrong, Askir. Askir, Askir yeah, yeah. who's got this wonderful story where his father writes the lyrics, who's an old poet, and he writes the melody over his dad's wow. portraits. Wow. Wonderful. to see what's next from you after an- I've kind of cleared my diary in order to focus on film because it's also like the the opera schedule is many years in advance quite understandably because this just sort of scale of it and especially in European repertoire houses how they can manage that and I love it making opera and I want to keep doing it and again I'll keep making theatre theatre is really my home I'll yeah. keep returning to it but I want to really have the space to follow filmmaking and and you need to have the space open for that I want to know what you play when you DJ <laughs> like uh, <laughs> boogie and African boogie and stuff like that Paradise Garage the loft yeah. thing of disco really yeah. sort of going back from growing up with in Australia at least first generation hip hop so going to see Ice-T in 1988 at La Rocks in Adelaide <laughs> yeah. and buying Nation of Millions when I'm 15, 16 that type of thing and how hip hop then leads you back down rivers into black music really thank you so much oh, for your thanks time thanks so much thanks for a great thank chat thank you yeah. cheers Here in the bars of Reykjavik when Benedict Andrews is playing out that's Party for Your Right to Fight by Public Enemy rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking Many thanks to Benedict for taking the time to talk to us Una is on general release in the UK now and elsewhere soon if it isn't already please do seek it out we can't help but think he'll make as many waves on the screen as he has on stage in the years to come 
Head to edithbowman.com to find that episode with Justin Curzel we refer to, along with all of our other conversations with the cinematic great and good. Subscribe while you're there or head to iTunes. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do tell your friends about us if you like what you hear. Next up is the wonderful actor, writer and director, Mr Stanley Tucci, who was simply delightful company. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.